Yeah, absolutely classic depression caused by a molecule that stimulates the immune system and stimulates inflammation. And so that began this whole notion that inflammation may cause depression in some people. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that everything counts in large amounts. Okay, that might date me because that is a Depeche Mode reference. If you don't know what Depeche Mode is, too bad. Uh, You'll have to Google it. But it turns out there are 20 newly discovered moons in Saturn's orbit, which makes it the moon king. And that means there are 82 moons, uh, and it's now ahead of Jupiter, which normally before that had just 79 moons. The reason this is interesting as a cool fact of the day is that it took astronomers at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C. years, because they're using data from 2004 to 2007 to figure this out just now, more than 10 years later. And what's happening now is is there's data we've already captured that we can now process and crunch in new ways, and there's all sorts of new data coming online. So when people look at you and stare you in the face and say, this is a fact, Uh, The bottom line is there's probably another layer underneath it that we haven't figured out yet. And I want you to take this little fact and just say, well, you you would have bet someone five years ago that there were X number of moons and said, no, it's actually X number of known moons. And when someone tells you, oh, your body can't do that, (laughs) there's a pretty good chance that they don't know something about your body. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that no one on earth knows something. So Keep pushing if there's something you want your biology to do. Who knows? It might actually be possible. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash dave for a seven-day free trial. 
Today's guest is uh, someone I've been wanting to interview for a while and someone you might not have have known. Um, he is uh, he's an internationally recognized expert in the way the brain and the immune system work together, specifically around stress and depression. He's a vice chair of research in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory School of Medicine, also the director of behavioral immunology there. And you're saying, that is a mouthful. This is how you behave based on what your immune system does. This idea that the tiny cells in your body, even subcellular things, are driving large behaviors, such as whether you want to punch someone or not, is it is shocking how real that is. So the dumb little mitochondria, other little things, they are kind of in charge of things way more than we like to admit to ourselves. And uh, Andrew Miller has researched these underlying mechanisms, including how inflammation can cause depression in humans and other primates. primates. And he did the first clinical trial examining how effective an immunotherapy would be in the treatment of depression. Uh, more than 250 scholarly publications, numerous awards, and was voted a top doctor in psychiatry for the past four years. In other words, a game changer if there ever was such a thing. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dave. I'm very pleased to be here. There are lots of things you can study as a medical doctor. <laughs> and there are lots of things that will make your colleagues really, really pissed off. Uh, and one of them is saying exactly what you've said, <laughs> that the immune system is causing behavioral issues. Uh, in fact, there are people who've had their licenses taken away for that. What made you decide to go the high-risk route uh, and start studying this and uh, and publicizing it? Well, it, it's actually an interesting story. Um and, and you're right. I think most of us believe that what we think and feel is driven largely by uh, psychological factors that are going on in our lives, our relationships with other people and, and things that happen to us at work and, and our various uh, pursuits. But the, uh, the thing that was fascinating to me and got me started in this area was um, some work that was going on in the in the area of cancer, and very early on there were uh, some of the first immunotherapies. And as I, I think most of your audience and you know that some of the major changes in cancer treatment have come about through our understanding the immune system and using different types of therapies that target the immune system to treat cancer. Well, these were some of the very earliest treatments that they were using as immunotherapies to treat cancer. And what they would do is they would uh, administer these uh, drugs, which are usually uh, molecules that are normally found in the body. So that's how immunotherapies are working with the immune system to help it fight cancer. And in this case, they were giving a molecule that is a cytokine, which is one of the many molecules that mediate how the immune system works in the body. Immune cells release cytokines. So they were giving an, a cytokine that induces inflammation to patients to treat their cancers. Which one was it? It's interferon alpha. So okay. interferon alpha is an inflammatory cytokine. It's actually one of the first, if not the first, immunotherapy, and at that time being used to treat malignant melanoma and renal cell carcinoma. So 
it became apparent very early on to the oncologist when they gave this uh, interferon alpha to patients that the patients started becoming depressed. And uh, they were quite concerned because patients were dropping uh, out of treatment and would not continue. No, I don't want to have that, that drug again. I felt miserable. And so eventually they said, we need to get psychiatry involved. And so I was asked to see one of these patients who was receiving interferon alpha. And I expected going into the, to the infusion center where they were infusing these molecules into the veins of these patients. I was expecting to see people sort of covered in a blanket and shivering and looking miserable. And of course, the oncologists don't know anything about depression. So, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what's really going on. So I went in and there was a woman sitting there and it probably took every ounce of energy and wherewithal that she had to get prepared for her seeing the psychiatrist, but she was nicely dressed and she sat there and, and in quite sober fashion told me that she was absolutely uh, depressed, that she had no interest in anything. She had no interest in her family. She had no interest in her husband, her children. She said she loved to cook. She was not cooking. She loved to garden. She was not gardening. She said she couldn't concentrate. Her memory was shot. She wasn't sleeping. She was exhausted all the time. And yes, maybe the thought had fleeting thought that maybe is this a way to live your life? Wow. Kind of a suicidal type thing. And I looked at her and I said, oh my God, this is someone who looks exactly like someone I would see in my practice who had just lost a child or just wow. had a broken up relationship or um, had, uh, had some other you know, horrible thing happen to them in their, in their lives. And I said, this is real depression. Uh, this isn't something that is a sickness or a, or a fever or some type of a medical reaction. This is a purely psychological uh, brain reaction to this, to this drug, to this cytokine, to this inflammatory cytokine. But she had cancer. I mean, shouldn't you be depressed if you have cancer? I asked her that question. Okay. <laughs> I asked her exactly that question. Good question. <laughs> I said, well, you know, look, you have malignant melanoma. That's not a good cancer. And she says, look, I came to grips with that months ago. Okay. This isn't about cancer. This is about having received this. Uh, well, she tied it to the treatment. She said okay. I felt fine. And then she had tied it to the treatment and just related to that, which I think is important because this comes up often because our, our studies did originally focus on cancer patients. And that, that issue came up um, multiple times in presentations and whatnot. And what I can just say briefly to address that is that we also gave interferon alpha to non-human primates, <laughs> to rhesus monkeys, okay. and they too became depressed and showed all and, the and the, features. These are monkeys who, who weren't already depressed because they were living in a laboratory. <laughs> Well, they, they're not—they're not happy about it, but but they're not depressed. No, no. I, I understand that they're probably more pissed off, uh, which probably, is a yeah, different exactly. state than depressed. Absolutely. Okay. 
and and a lot of people who succeed in fighting cancer, they are fighting cancer and they are full of fight, mm-hmm. right? And, and you're saying here's a drug that shifts you from that fight response into depression. Yeah, absolutely. Classic depression caused by a molecule that stimulates the immune system and stimulates inflammation. And so that began this whole notion that inflammation may cause depression in some people. Now, one of the core tenets in, in the entire body of things that I've written and uh, uh, and just taught and learned o- over years is that inflammation is pretty much at the root of most aging. By the way, right now as we're recording this, for the first time in my career as an author, my new book, Superhuman, about longevity and aging, is in its second week on the New York Times bestseller list, which wow. is awesome. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you. But a big thing is there, hey... You, you better turn down inflammation if you want to live a long time. Uh, and the primary cause of inflammation is actually mitochondria, like because you don't get inflammation without them. Uh, and if they're, if they're not functioning, all of the cytokines will affect your mitochondria in some way or another. Uh, and in my own path of being much happier and not weighing 300 pounds and all that, turning off inflammation is a, a fundamental goal of almost everything I do. What I found, though, is that um, anxiety, uh, not just depression, but anxiety is, is very much tied to biological wellness. Uh, if your cells are working, uh, and I have all kinds of theories and, and certainly you've got all sorts of, of laboratory stuff there, but for people listening to this, okay, they don't have cancer. They're not injecting cytokine cytokines, but they're doing stuff that causes inflammation and where I'm going with this, is this kind of a binary thing? Either you have enough, you're depressed, or is it, oh, you're a little depressed. You, you have less less bounce today. You're far from depressed, but you're a little bit inflamed, so you're a little bit less effective in your life. Is it is it linear or is it binary? Well, you know, of course, as a physician, we tend to be more binary about things. Yeah. And we say, well, either you have depression or you don't. And we all know that People have a lot. There's a lot of gray, uh, gray area in between, and uh, I think it is linear. And and what you're talking about is extremely important because the level of inflammation in your body, and 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 we all, as you as you pointed out, um, that we all have sources of inflammation. We can get into that. You know, where does inflammation come from if somebody's not injecting it into your arm or you don't have cancer, for example? There are many sources and we can go over them. You've already touched on some, but I was recently at an aging conference about, you know, what what, what are the drivers to people getting older? Which conference? This was at Stanford. And the conference was really, uh, it was all about inflammaging. So that is a concept. Inflammaging <laughs> is one of the hottest topics in immunology right now because we recognize that much of what drives the process of, of aging in the brain and much of what drives many of the illnesses that eventually uh, do people in are driven by inflammation. So we're talking about cardiovascular disease. We're talking about diabetes. We're talking about cancer. We're talking about neurodegenerative disorders. <laughs> You're really talking about all of the diseases, all the modern ills that we as a society are, are, are grappling with right now. 
And the thing that's really cool about this is if you go back and you start to say, well, why? You know, where did all this come from? And it's interesting if you think at, uh, about it from an evolutionary perspective. We as human beings are we're not designed to live in the world we live in now. We were designed to live in a world where there was a very heavy, high pathogen load, and we mm -hmm. could get attacked by a predator at pretty much any point in time. And in order to survive to reproductive age in ancestral times, you needed a really aggressive inflammatory response, a very aggressive immune system to go after all these pathogens that were rife in the environment because there was no sanitation, the water was contaminated, the food was spoiled. There was no way you were going to get around not being exposed to a ton of pathogens. Plus, there was all this wounding that's going on. And what does inflammation do? It's all about fighting pathogens and healing wounds. So, okay. so that's if, if you're alive today, you're alive because your ancestors had a really aggressive immune system. And I think something that's kind of really an added coolness factor in this, when humans migrated out of Africa into Europe and Asia, we actually had to mate with subhuman uh, species to pick up their DNA in order to fight the pathogens that were in Europe and Asia, because it was, they could not. The Neanderthals and Exactly. Denizens. Exactly. Yeah. So if you go into every, you know, Caucasian, every a person that's not African of pure African descent, descent, you will find DNA and from the, the Neanderthals and the Dysonians. Yeah. And that DNA is sitting in regions of the genome that are responsible for fighting infection. The reason that that is so fascinating is that I've looked into something called the HLA uh, DR4 uh, genetic uh, subtype, and something that I have, something about a third of people have that makes you more prone to inflammation. And in fact, in my first book, I wrote about this. This has a lot to do with toxic mold and Lyme disease sensitivity, mm -hmm. environmental sensitivities. And the theory there is that we picked up those genes because we were the people who were the marauders. So in addition to fighting tigers, we had to go to a new village with new bacteria. We had to take our swords or arrows or clubs or whatever the heck we used back then and survive getting cut so your blood clots quickly and you have a hyper-aggressive immune response. And unfortunately, that means you're very likely to have massive health problems if you live in a building with toxic mold. Uh, so that was my uh, my focus. I've done a documentary on toxic mold, but um, your your work is going beyond just inflammation. Does that mean that people who tend to be uh, more inflamed that they're also more likely to be anxious, depressed, angry, warlike uh, jerks? Uh, <laughs> I would think that. Um, I guess the answer to that question, if you just look at the data, the answer to that question is yes. Because if you look at Thank you. if you look at individuals, for example, who have autoimmune or inflammatory disorders, these individuals have much higher rates of psychiatric complications, yeah. including anxiety, depression, 
And what's interesting, you'd say, oh, we can go back to your, if you have cancer, you'd be miserable anyway. So what's, you know, what's this have to do with inflammation? If you take those individuals who have these high rates of depression and anxiety, and you treat them with a drug that blocks these cytokines, like we were talking about earlier, if you block just those cytokines, the depression scores drop, the anxiety levels drop, and the people feel as if they are new people in terms of their you know, psychological wellness, their psychological well-being, their mental health. That is one of the most powerful things in 700 episodes <laughs> uh, that, that I've heard someone say just, just straight up uh, in one sentence. In my own path, when I got over time control of all the different inflammatory cytokines that I had problems with, and it was more than just a couple because I had a lot of inflammation, um, I stopped being a jerk. My anxiety levels dropped. My performance at everything I did went up. My energy levels went up. And I like to think I'm generally a nice person uh, the vast majority of the time. Uh, and if I do something that causes inflammation, I see a change in my happiness levels. Uh, and it's, it's very noticeable on even sometimes a half hour basis. I, I can see a shift in my energy levels. And it's not just not mitochondria, like, oh, I have energy, I could run faster, my VO2 max is slightly better. It's I, I care more or I care less about everything. And I'm not depressed. I'm very far from depressed. But it, for me, it's very linear. And I think it's that way for most people. Is it that way for most people or just the third of us who have the extra Neanderthal, I will invade your village and take your food, even if it's spoiled genes? Well, I think this is something that we're struggling with because we, we it's very clear that if you have high levels of inflammation, that the inflammation through a series of processes that have a lot to do with what you're alluding to, which is metabolism, that mm -hmm. metabolism, especially even within the, the immune cells themselves, uh, leads to the release of these, these uh, cytokines, these inflammatory cytokines, which we know can get into the brain, and they get into brain regions that are relevant to um, behavior. And they go to a couple of brain regions. They go to one brain regions that are subcortical brain regions that are involved in reward processing, uh, so your motivation. And they go to a region of the brain that's involved in um, your perception of threat. So when you talk about being irritable and maybe a little aggressive, you see things more as threatening. So your likelihood yep. to interpret uh, something that's going on in your environment and then interpersonal interaction, you'd see it as more threatening as it, than it might otherwise be. So that's clear to us. It's clear that if you have significant inflammation, there are two things your body wants to do. Number one, it wants to shut down, to shunt energy resources to wound healing and fighting infection. Second thing you need to do if you're if you are infected or wounded, and these are evolutionarily derived, we think behaviors, mm -hmm. is you need to be on hyper alert status. You need to be looking for trouble in the environment because that trouble could be an animal coming to finish off the job they wounded you to start with, and now they're looking for you to to ultimately uh, have you for lunch. And so there is a certain 
uh, vulnerability that comes with um, being sick or wounded. And so you need to be on alert that you may be attacked because of that. That's so those are the things that those behaviors are the behaviors we think feed into the psychiatric disorders per se. Okay, so depression, anxiety. But let's go back to the linear. What if you just had a little bit of inflammation? You know, a little above normal. It, does that impact behavior? And the answer we think, and we're testing this now, is yes. That the decision-making process is influenced in such a way that you begin to discount things that take more effort. So if you're thinking about going to the gym, you go, well, you know, I'd rather just kind of get my, my, kuda, my, my goodies by sitting on the couch and, and watching TV instead of going to all the trouble to go to the gym. And it may show up in that you're just kind of not as motivated to go and, and do these other things. Maybe you're a little fatigued. So there, there are lower levels of, of symptoms that ultimately impact our decision-making. Am I going to go to the store and buy a series of healthy foods that I'm then going to have to bring home and cook? Or am mm -hmm. I going to go to one of the local fast food places and get something that is simple, easy, and quick. So I'm and inflammatory and feed <laughs> and, and feeds the fire. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it it feeds on itself, really. I mean, if you if you, it if, does. you, if, you if you if you think about it. So yes, to answer your question, I think it's linear, and this is the kind of thing that we're now so, sort of working in to some of our research studies is uh, cognitive neuroscience, where we can yeah. begin to see how people make decisions. And um, there's a process of, 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 of discounting. As if I say, I'm going to give you a dollar now or $5 in two weeks, you probably say, look, I'll take the dollar now and I'll wait two weeks for $5. So you, you're discounting by virtue of the time factor. We think inflammation affects those decisions so that even if the the payoff is bigger and bigger and bigger the person will still take the immediate reward because they don't want to wait they're not willing to put in the time and energy uh for the for the for the big win in the future that may require some work as well one of the things that didn't make it into uh into superhuman my anti-aging book is the idea that as we age, we pick up slow-growing bacteria, things like mycoplasma, uh, things like Bartonella, uh, things that really aren't going to do anything for 20 or 30 years, but the longer you live, the more you're exposed to them. And these bacteria actually make cytokines specifically to cause cellular destruction so they can use the parts of the cells as their own either fuel or building blocks to make more of themselves. Uh, and that... Uh, I believe, I just didn't have enough evidence to put it in the book, uh, but I believe uh, some of the things that happen as we age are coming from those guys. My personal experience, I had uh, I had the toxic mold exposure and Lyme disease and a bunch of other things, so I really dug in on the bacterial side of things. 
I take a stack of herbs. Um, this is uh, actually something I've never talked about on the show, but herbs that, that come from all around the world that I know based on lab testing, in addition to the studies, that turn down all the inflammatory pathways that I have. When I take those, I don't get sick very often, and I perform really well. And if I don't take them for a while, I start to degrade, right? And, and it's literally managing cytokines. Do you believe that these uh, subclinical bacterial infections that are common but really don't make you that sick, are those, uh, are those common? Are those relevant to what you're studying? I think that um, they likely are. It's not an area that I study, and there's not a lot of literature on it. What there is a growing, rapidly growing literature on is on the microbiome. And those are all the bacteria that are basically in the body and uh, in the gut uh, and in the skin and in and pretty much all the uh, parts of your of your body. And 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 what we understand now is that the microbiome, especially in the gut, is playing a huge role in um, dictating exactly how the immune system functions. That is now expanding to viruses. Uh, I am sure it will expand to parasites and other, uh, uh, other various uh, infectious uh, or commensal uh, organisms that are kind of long for the ride. Uh, we just are, it, it's just now uh, the tip of the iceberg. We really have not dug down deep enough. But what is very clear is that infections and the microbiome are playing a huge role on your level of inflammation in your body. And part of it is related to how the uh, microbiome regulates the immune cells, as well as leaking into your circulation through a leaky gut, uh, based largely on your diet and other factors such as stress. These can all lead to leaky gut and microbial products from your gut will leak into the circulation and activate immune cells to then release uh, inflammatory molecules that, that then can affect your brain. Uh, if you're listening to this and, and asking yourself, well, seriously, I'm probably not someone who's, who's affected by this. It, it's starting to sound like you are affected by this. And interestingly, Think about that time you were hungover, and when you were really drunk, you ate a bucket of fries and some pizza, and you woke up the next morning. How did you feel? Okay, you just turned on massive inflammation through aldehyde and trans fats, and God knows what else you did that night. So that was not a good day, right? <laughs> we can all feel that. That's inflammation. Right? <laughs> so this is just to get over that little skepticism. Say, hey, actually, I have at least one case in my own life where this happens, or you felt really crappy after the flu, and it wasn't just the symptoms, you, you're you dragging. Mm -hmm. that, that's, this is at least how I picture these things. Are those good examples of, of things that most people have experienced? Yes, I think that especially the flu, I think most people have experienced pretty much what inflammation does in stark relief. I think that okay. that's sort of a dramatic example. The those moments when you have the flu where you literally cannot move, even though you want to move, you you can't move, and oh, it's yeah. it's almost like a paralysis. And you hear people with Lyme's disease and some of these other infectious illnesses will describe exactly the same thing. And as I said, this is 
the grand design to shut us down when we are when we're infected because we really need to shunt those energy resources to to fueling the immune system I'm uh, I'm just blown away to to hear you say this, uh, especially given you know, what you're studying, your background, and and that this is entering the field of hard science and medicine, so that we can start looking at people who have anxiety and depression and say, all right, do you have an infection? Do you have inflammation? And you know, are there parts of your brain that aren't aren't necessarily structured right or aren't working? But even if they're not working, is it because of inflammation? And and so I, I'm a fan of Dr. Daniel Amen's work with spec scans and fMRI, looking at the brain. Uh, my own brain, we we did the radioactive marker uh, injections and all, and found big parts of my PFC that just had no metabolic activity. Uh, sorry uh, for people listening. PFC is prefrontal cortex, the logic part of the, in the front of the brain. And um, his determination was: look, you know, you had environmental toxins from mold most likely, uh, maybe mercury or something else, that were inhibiting activity there. Now, are you seeing or are your colleagues seeing specific regions of the brain? You mentioned subcortical, but are there other spots that get hit by inflammation more than others that would affect our behavior in other ways? Yes. So that's um, much of the work that, that we've done, and there are other investigators that have found very very similar results. All of us oh, wow. go, going at the uh, at the issue a little bit differently. So we know this is a the these findings are relatively reproducible across different inflammatory stimuli and across different laboratories. And what we find is that yes, there are effects in the prefrontal cortex, and yes, we see a decrease in activity, um, metabolic activity in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, we also see activation of threat-related regions in the brain, including um, uh, re regions that uh, may not be relevant to your audience, but maybe some. The, dors the, the amygdala? Uh, or well, that's, yes, the amygdala for sure, the hippocampus, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. These are all in the insula. These are all brain regions that form circuits and much of what we do in psychiatry now is about circuitry, what different brain regions talking to one another leading to um, behavioral phenomena. And that circuit that involves the amygdala and the insula and the hippocampus, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is the anxiety circuit. So we see this activation of the anxiety circuitry. We also see, and I alluded to this previously, effects on reward circuitry. So that includes both subcortical regions, uh, the striatum, and cortical regions, uh, uh, the ventromedial uh, prefrontal cortex. So in those prefrontal cortex regions, what you see is you see an increased activity in the anxiety circuits, and you see a decreased activity in the reward circuitry. And the amazing thing is you see a linear correlation between the activity in these circuits and the amount of inflammation in your body as measured by C-reactive protein, which you can <laughs> which you can go to your doctor right now and get measured. In fact, there are three lab tests that I have recommended since the very beginning of, of writing my first book or my blog post. It's homocysteine, uh, C-reactive protein, and LPPLA2. Yep. 
And the first two are because inflammation matters. And the third one is because everyone's afraid that cholesterol is going to damage their arteries. And if there is damage to your arteries, the third one goes up. And if you just have those three numbers, magically, <laughs> you're going to know if you have inflammation. If you have inflammation, it's your job to figure out what it is yeah. and what to do about it. Now, here's a question for you. Who, uh, or not who, what would be the best single anti-inflammatory compound you've come across that might make people feel better? That's a tough one. And I think that's the, um, right now, that's the holy grail in medicine. We recognize that inflammation is driving these diseases. Um, but yet, strangely enough, we do not have any drug at this point um, that blocks inflammation in a way that doesn't um, leave one pretty vulnerable to infection. So the drugs that are used for people with autoimmune and inflammatory disorders, those are great drugs. And we actually are giving those drugs to patients with depression right now. And these are drugs that block uh, certain inflammatory cytokines. They're very potent anti-inflammatory agents. And if you have a bad inflammatory disease, that's great because you'll feel much better. But if you're someone who has middling and semi-high levels of inflammation without a frank inflammatory disease, then the risks of having a serious infection um, are greater than the benefits that you would receive from blocking inflammation. So right now, there yeah. is not a drug. We recommend uh, a couple of things that we do. We recommend, obviously, the lifestyle factors that contribute to inflammation. You've alluded to some, some of which you've struggled with yourself. Obesity, right. obese, hands down, obesity is the biggest offender. Fat cells grow at a very rapid rate. And when they grow, they outstrip their oxygen supply, their blood supply, and they die. And anytime there's tissue damage or destruction, it's a wound as far as the immune system is concerned. It's not quibbling, is this good, bad, whatever. And the immune system, the cells enter fat tissue, they release a ton of cytokine. And if you go into fat tissue and you biopsy it, you'll see a ton of these uh, uh, inflammatory cells, the macrophages will be there and they'll be activated. So obesity is clearly the number one offender. Then you start looking at stress uh, as being a major offender, especially early trauma, early childhood uh, stress yeah. uh, appears to really have lingering influences on how the immune system is regulated and biases towards inflammation. Even how you're born. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and that was my first book. Yeah, but, <laughs> it was a fertility uh, book. Not, and and, <laughs> and the, the more we learn about it, there's a lot of in utero stuff that's going on yeah. as well. So some of this you may not have a whole lot of control over. Although there are, we are learning a lot about the changes that occur to your genome, the epigenetic changes. I don't yes. know that that's come up. And th those are changes where the environment influences how the genes work. So even if you have a certain genetic predisposition, uh, the uh, 
the environment can influence how those genes are expressed. And we've learned about that. So I think there'll be some treatments along those lines. But stress can cause a chronic inflammation. Okay. And then we talked about the, the gut and the, the dysbiosis. Infections can obviously cause inflammation. And of course, there are a ton of things we do to people in my world in medicine where we do surgery and we do radiation, chemotherapy, the kinds of treatments that people get for cancer and whatnot. In terms of medications, um, this is an area that I'm actively working on right now, but I'm not targeting inflammation. I'm going downstream of inflammation and targeting the molecules that inflammation is screwing up in your brain. And oh, wow. one of the molecules that seems to be a number one target is dopamine. So think about <laughs> dopamine. Dopamine is oh, your yeah. get up. And if you don't have dopamine, you might as well cash it in. I mean, that's Parkinson's. You have no dopamine. You can't move. You're, of course, Parkinson's disease, very high rates of depression, lack of motivation, no dopamine. That's pretty much it. That's, you know. And so what we do is, is and this is how I treat uh uh, my own patients is that if they have increased inflammation, we will work with medications that are targeting dopamine as their main mechanism of action. So that would be there are certain antidepressants, uh, bupropion being one of them, uh, stimulants. Uh, they're drugs that directly activate dopamine receptors. Uh, Pramipexol being one of those. We're even giving some of the Parkinson drugs to uh, patients with increased inflammation and this kind of uh, loss of motivation, anhedonia, we call it, and depression, uh, fatigue, so and so on and so forth. You're sensitizing their dopamine receptors, basically, we're, so that we're, they'll yeah. be more responsive to smaller stimuli. Yes. That's mind-blowing. Uh, what about nicotine? Oral nicotine, nicotine patches, uh, for Alzheimer's. Yes, um, it's there's not a lot of work in terms of the impact of inflammation on nicotine, uh, other than to say that nicotine binds to nicotinic receptors in immune cells and actually shuts off inflammation. So how that all works, and I mean. Obviously, acetylcholine has other effects in, that are yeah. probably more dramatic in the brain that you're talking about. But in terms of the effects of inflammation on the brain and the neurotransmitter systems there, there's not been a lot of work on what's happening with acetylcholine. But what about the other natural compounds, uh, things like fish oil, uh, things like turmeric? And uh, you know, I, like full disclosure, I make a fish egg oil thing. My turmeric formula includes some of the Chinese herbs that I use for inflammation. Uh, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, and there's like this long list, way longer, green tea extracts, resveratrol, you know, that David Sinclair mm -hmm. has been studying. And I mean, the list is hundreds of compounds that you can buy at the vitamin store. Um, is there any efficacy, any research, just your general thoughts on that path? Uh, I think there's a lot of interest at this point, and there are studies uh, underway uh, that the, uh, the National Institute of Health is, is very interested in determining 
which of these compounds uh, actually have biologic activity and much of the interest is related to inflammation. Um, the data is um, not entirely clear yet because there are multiple issues around dosing there are multiple issues around the quality of the compound oh yeah and in order for us to study uh these um various uh food supplements if you will um mm -hmm. it, they you this all has to be run through the fda so in order to do these kinds of studies you have to get a supplier who's willing to give all of the details from the actual growing of a herb, for example, and mm -hmm. what contaminants might be introduced in the process of growing. I mean, it's really quite, quite detailed, and there are not many yeah. suppliers who are willing to give you that information or even have that information. So that really blocks us as a, as a, um, as a society from getting access to good quality supplements that may in fact have major impacts on, uh, impact on our health. And so that, that's kind of just one of those things that we don't have a lot of control over. And so you're kind of a catch as catch can when you go to the, to the vitamin store or the health food store and you buy this and that and the other thing, we just don't know. The fish oil, um, there is better data with fish oil. There are some studies that suggest that it has uh, anti-inflammatory effects and potentially antidepressant effects. Um, that's an active area of investigation. Um, but they're using, again, highly purified, you know, really high-quality stuff. And it has to be it has to be standardized. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's the same thing. People say, "Oh, I my I hear this from functional medicine doctors a lot." I told my patients to take this specific brand um, of whichever this was, and then they went to uh, some <laughs> store and they bought the six dollar version, and then they came in with pimples and no positive effects, and they told me they were doing what I said. And, and unfortunately, having dug in on the supply chains and stuff like that a good indicator of the quality of your supplement is the cost because it costs more to make the good stuff. However, unethical companies can also raise their price to make it look <laughs> good. And you're like, ah, how do you crack that code? Uh, I, I found it frustrating uh, as well. So I, I'm, I'm with you. And uh, you know, there, there are some studies of single ingredients, uh, but quite often they're out of India mm -hmm. or somewhere, but you know, we, we do our best. And um, I, I feel like the worst that's going to happen for most, most of these natural food based things Look, if you try taking broccoli extract or turmeric or whatever the thing is, and you feel way better and your joints don't hurt and you sleep better or whatever that happens, good for you. Uh, keep doing that. <laughs> and if nothing happens, maybe don't do that. And it, just, it, it seems like the risk is relatively low, so it might be worth experimenting. But um, I know if I hadn't experimented, I wouldn't be where I am today. But also I'm a corner case because I had all the bad stuff. Right. And, and, and one thing that, that you should be aware of, and you may be aware of, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but there are efforts, and we got into this with the, uh, with the curcumin uh, molecule, where you can actually, the chemists will take the curcumin and make it more bioavailable, more potent, 
And so you're taking the natural compounds and creating drugs that are, for all intents and purposes, the same thing, but are now being produced. You're using chemistry to make the natural world even better. So I, I know yeah. that wanders out into a little bit of maybe dangerous territory, but... No, it's not dangerous at all. I mean, delivery systems of supplements are important. Like We make a liposomal glutathione because mm -hmm. liposomes are little, yeah. little balls of fat that can carry drugs past or drugs or natural compounds past the lining of the gut. And the, the curcumin formula, we use a standardized extract called BCM95 with clinical studies that shows it goes up. But we pair it with brain octane oil, which is the caprylic acid-based C8-MCT that's a part of Bulletproof Coffee, uh, because we know that that oil also affects how things are absorbed. And we had some other compounds, uh, more from the Chinese herb side of things. And end of the day, the effectiveness of the delivery system, mm -hmm. um, we know that it matters. And I have studies on the BCM95. But the other things I'm doing, I believe they're going to work. So I only talk about the effectiveness I can prove, but I'm doing other stuff in there. Uh, and um, if, things that are known to be safe and I believe likely to be effective. <laughs> but it, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's an You're art You're doing your own chemistry at this point, but yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah you have to. But you, your work talks about... Um, and by the way, thanks for the for going there on the fish oil and all that stuff. I know for uh, MDs, sometimes that can be, uh, you know, like if I say good or bad things, it's almost like you talked about a vaccine or something. Like, you know, it, it can be polarizing and I'm not trying to be polarizing there. Um, you, it's not just dopamine, though. It's also glutamate. And, and glutamate is a very interesting compound in the brain because uh, it's tied to migraines. If you have excess glutamate, uh, you can definitely get problems there. But there are also some issues around autism. It's, ne it's issues with aging, but it's also necessary. And people who are depressed and feel like crap, you give them glutamine, which is an amino acid, magically their gut lining heals and their brain also can turn on in about 10 minutes. They get less depressed, at least in my experience, not being qualified to diagnose depression. So talk to me about glutamate, glutamine, inflammation, and depression. Okay, so this is uh, the second sort of uh, downstream target uh, of inflammation that we've, we've had a lot of interest in. And we saw this very early on uh, with those patients who were getting the inflammatory cytokine interferon alpha for, um, for treating medical illnesses. And we saw that glutamate was going up in the brain. And um, this fit very well with a larger basic science data that shows that if you treat cells, uh, typically astrocytes, which are the molecules that contain, kind of control the levels of glutamate in the synapse, um, that inflammatory cytokines uh, disrupt the ability of astrocytes to control glutamate. Glutamate is uh, extremely important. It is the the um, uh, the major excitatory uh, neurotransmitter in the brain uh, and um, critical to brain function. The problem is is that glutamate, even in just 
minor increases is toxic. It's excitotoxic. So whenever you have mm -hmm. something that's excitatory, the the bleeding into being excitotoxic is is a uh, is something that can occur at very low concentrations. And so it's does that mean MSG is bad for us? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure about that, <laughs> but. Uh, the, uh, clearly uh, too much glutamate is. And uh, okay. <laughs> so when there is excessive glutamate, it can spill out of the synapse and that leads to chaotic signaling in the brain. Uh, it leads to uh, the death of cells um, and uh, it leads to um, uh, premature or accelerated aging in the brain. So it's killing the sort of the white matter tracks in your brain, and the white matter tracks in your brain are the are the highways along which your um, the signals go from one series of neurons to the next. So if you destroy the highways, everything slows down, and then you're starting to talk about degenerative disorders associated with like Alzheimer's and dementia and those types of things. So the effects of inflammation on glutamate seem to be much more of a destructive nature than the effects on dopamine, which seem much more functional in nature. Um, there are functional consequences, as I said, with too much glutamate because it does cause this chaotic signaling in the brain. Um, and uh, when there's a loss of coherence and signaling in the brain, it kind of screws everything up. Um, and so that that's when you start to invoke diseases where there's really broken brains like autism and schizophrenia and, and these kinds of disorders. Um, we have started to um, test treatments that target glutamate to treat potentially depression, to treat uh, some of the consequences of chemotherapy, like a chemo brain, which we think is an inflammation-related phenomena. And of course, they're already using drugs that block glutamate to treat uh, dementia unrelated to inflammation, although we think they'd be most effective in individuals who had high inflammation. So there's a whole evolving okay. glutamate story. Is there anything, someone listening who maybe is dealing with inflammation or maybe even knows that they're sensitive to higher levels of glutamate that they might want to consider lifestyle, pharmaceutical, uh, not that you're going to prescribe over the air, that's not what I'm talking about, but just like areas of focus. I, you know, I think that at this point, um, it from the data that we have, it's a little premature to go targeting uh glutamate as we were talking about with dopamine. I think the best thing to do at this point is to try to get the inflammation down. And so that okay. would include exercise and um, and some of the, the, the sort of yoga, meditation, all of these types of um, uh, strategies increase parasympathetic tone. And the parasympathetic nervous system has been shown to reduce inflammation. So much so that there's actually a treatment, which I think is really cool, where they stimulate the parasympathetic nerve outflow pathways, and it will treat arthritis. And throughout the body, it's... it's, it's In the vagus nerve? Uh, yeah. And it's an electroceutical, it's, they call it electroceuticals. Yeah. Very cool. And they're stimulating. I've got a couple. Yeah, they're stimulating the vagus. And it's FDA approved. 
they've done the clinical trials. The FDA said good enough, and you could get your rheumatoid arthritis uh, treated with uh, stimulating your vagus nerve. And it's sti- stimulating it going down from from mm-hmm. the from the brain down. Uh, Stephen Porges, the the father of polyvagal theory, has been on the show, and we we talked uh-huh. about just how profoundly important that is for inflammation. Uh, and I mean, I, I've done weird stuff. I've also put five uh, percent uh, xylocaine or lidocaine on the, the vagus nerve in the bottom of the left ear canal uh-huh. uh, to 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 lower inflammation. <laughs> At least for me, it, it, it seems to work in a way that you wouldn't expect. But uh, you could see as a as an MD life, it <laughs> might make sense. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not injecting it; it's just like an ointment or or actually a, a water based, a liquid works best. Um, so we talked about glutamate. Uh, we talked about uh, dopamine, and uh, we haven't talked about the big gun anti-inflammatories that we all know about: ibuprofen, naproxen. <laughs> aspirin. <laughs> I mean, if I'm feeling depressed and a little bloated, should I just pop some of these things and not worry about a little bleeding in my gut? Well, that that's, I think, the uh, a, a, a question that we haven't quite resolved yet. There is a paper that just came out with uh, patients with uh, uh, bipolar disorder and depression, and they use celecoxib, which is a COX-2 inhibitor, which mm-hmm. is along the lines of these, these anti-inflammatory drugs. And, um, and they found a significant benefit of the addition of yeah. this uh, celecoxib uh, to, uh, to, uh, to the treatment, uh, to standard antidepressant treatment. The problem is, is that we, what we understand about inflammation and psychiatric disease is that the psychiatric diseases that we study, let's take depression, for example, not every depressed patient has increased inflammation. It really only occurs in about 30% of depressed individuals. So this only applies to about 30%. The trials that have been done using drugs like uh, you know, Motrin or ibuprofen or these kinds of aspirin, whatever, all these trials have treated everybody and they don't split people out. They don't split people out with a, you, you would think they'd do the study the right way, but they have not. And I've unfortunately or unfortunately have been uh, a sort of a very outspoken advocate for doing the trials the right way so that we can actually get the kind of information that would help people make a decision. Should I take an aspirin along with my antidepressant if I'm inflamed or, or a a Motrin or any of these other drugs, but none Mm. of the trials that have been done have split out the patients into those with high and low inflammation. Not only that, when I hear 30%, there's two groups that have high inflammation that both are 30%. One are the people with methylation pathway disorders and MTHFR, and people listening to this have probably seen me writing about that and whatever else. That's a third of us. So they're going to have inflammation. And the other third is HLA-DR4, the people who have the things I talked about earlier that make you more susceptible to Lyme disease, mold toxins, and probably metals as well. And if you have both of those things, you're probably depressed <laughs> and you're probably inflamed. Right? But we can test for those uh, to, to look for it. And you can also just test for the presence of cytokines, which is what it's a $50 or less test yes, to see correct. how inflamed someone mm-hmm. is. Or would you just use CRP? CRP would C-R-P be a protein? Yeah, yes. Okay, And that's like a $10 test. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, there's other big limitations to the body of research that you and I both rely on. Most of it's done on white males because 
going back through 1950, there's a preponderance of young white males walking around universities, and you can use them as guinea pigs for free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, th- this is just how it's been. And now education is much more, uh, is much more even in that we have a mix of, of men and women, and we still don't have like a, a mix of, at least in most schools, that matches the genetics of the planet. So, you know, Southeast Asians or Africans or, uh, you know, indigenous people might not be well, well represented. Do your results work the same or your findings? Do they apply to women and men in different races and different ages? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. So most of in depression okay. is over. There's an overrepresentation of women. So most of the patients yeah. that, you know, 65% of the patients in our studies are women. And we do see that the women are showing similar responses uh, as men. And in fact, there's some data to suggest that women may be more sensitive to the effects of inflammation than men. Um, that's yeah. something that we're very interested in and going after. It's obvious. Yeah. It's called love handles. <laughs> I'm not even joking. That is one of the easiest ways to know if you're inflamed. Do you have love handles today that weren't there yesterday? And do women get love handles more easily than men? They actually do. And as someone who's a professional at growing my own love handles, I know this. So, like, <laughs> yes. And 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 the other question, the other issue is the 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 the, the ethnic and racial mix of our samples. We're in we're in Atlanta, Georgia, so we're a, a city that has almost 50, 50 uh, black and white, and so we have a, a very nice representation of both African Americans and and Caucasians in our samples, and we do see is similar. There- uh, similar it's results. It's similar, yeah. so it isn't a difference. We haven't seen. Right. You know, the thing that was interesting is that um, you see these very high rates of depression in women, and so people say, well, maybe there's a biological piece to this. When we did our early interferon studies, we found that women seem to be as sensitive. So our data is not consistent with some of the other data, but we had a fairly large sample, over 100 patients, and receiving uh, this interferon alpha, and the women developed depression the same as the men. There was no difference. So we, at the time, were writing, and so we'll see how this all falls out, but we, at the time, were writing that that inflammation was an equal opportunity uh, phenomenon that it really was affecting both sexes uh, similarly. I don't think that inflammation is equal opportunity uh, from a from a racial perspective. I mean, we see more diabetes, which is an inflammatory disease, um, amongst African Americans than we do uh, from Caucasians. And it might be economic because of food quality, but I think there's also something to do with uh, sun exposure, vitamin D levels, because higher melanin in your skin means you need more vitamin D, and none of us gets enough vitamin D right now because we're all indoors all the time, uh, which could be a part of it. And like, we'll tease that out. I I don't know if if you have any more data on that, but inflammation affects all of us. I I don't know that it affects every... Yeah. When you sort out the economic stuff, who knows? When you start to sort out the economic stuff, things do change. There are some differences, though, and it has to do with stress. So there, there... we some of our studies are done on in the inner city hospitals in Atlanta, which are are probably seventy five percent to eighty percent African American, and in these populations you see uh, extremely high rates of early life trauma and then chronic stress as well. And the PTSD levels in these populations are higher than the PTSD levels 
than military personnel coming back from yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan. There also is all the the racial bias that is in our society that everybody Chris just kind of and that's anxiety. chronically yeah. there that would not be there for someone who was white. So that there is a kind of a low level discrimination that that causes stress and you can measure this and we have and it is related in part to to some of the physiologic changes that we see well the idea here is to build the environment around us so that it supports our biology which means that we don't have (laughs) unnatural stressors (laughs) and so we all have access to the things that are actually food instead of things that look like food and you can't eat uh, and and things like that that's uh, it's going to take some big work uh, but it's cool because it's going to take a little bit of time. And uh, if if we can all live for a couple hundred years, we'll have enough time to do it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very fascinated, if you can't tell, uh, by your research and directly and scientifically uh, in detail tying together what's going on inside, um, you know, inside of our inflammatory pathways, inside of our cells and the way we show up in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I have intuited and figured this out in my own life, and I've shared the things that that have been best practices for me. Uh, and it is uh, it's actually relaxing and invigorating to read through your research and go, I always thought that was the case, and, and I could show people how to do it, but you've told us the why for a lot of this in a way that, as far as I can see, no one else has ever done. And I, I think it's truly groundbreaking and, and very meaningful for what it what it means to be a human being. So I'm I'm grateful that you've done that. Um, and I have one final question for you. Uh, I mentioned my book on longevity, and I've been very public. I'm planning to live to at least 180. And because I know <laughs> I've seen someone do 120, uh, so I'll take that. And I'm counting on guys like you and many of the other people I've interviewed and some of whom I've become friends with. They're going to do 50% better over the next 100 years than we could do today. So that's why my number is 180. What's your number? How long can you live? Well, I don't know about myself. My genetics are pretty good. My mother's almost a hundred, so and there's there all, we have a strong family history of, of longevity. I think that there are some intriguing studies targeting the inflammation, inflammation that we were talking about mm-hmm. before, and metformin is the one that is the. Ah. There's a metformin trial that's going on right now to see if they can extend uh, uh, lifespan in humans. It's already been shown in just about every other species it's been looked at, and they've even done this in worms. Where <laughs> you give the worms right. metformin, oh, yeah. then they live, you know, long periods of time, and the, so the com- and and. The company that did the the worm and the mouse study was called Biomarker Pharmaceuticals ah, okay. uh, back in the early 2000s. I started taking metformin based on those studies. So maybe uh, you will then. live to 180. <laughs> You'll be ahead <laughs> of the I curve. Quit. <laughs> I, I quit for other reasons. So I'm really curious what the latest study says. I, I'm going back and forth. It, it's a hot topic. Of it is. And, at, and whether metformin is the, the right one. But metformin targets the metabolism that drives the inflammation. So as you get older, your metabolism changes and that change in metabolism becomes pro-inflammatory in nature. And if you can block those metabolic pathways that drive the inflammation, then you block the inflammation. And so that's where I think people are sort of going in terms of the, you know, how can you live to 180? That's where they're going. And so I think if this trial that they're doing now, they actually had to crowdfund. They could, they, they could not get 
any of the governmental agencies to fund it. So I think they crowdsourced it. Uh, I know they crowdsourced it, and and the study has started. Be a good one to and get are, into. <laughs> are you taking that? Uh, not yet. We, my wife okay, and I, have discussed it, it, but we have not. We have not gone that. Just, that route just don't don't take it when you exercise because it undoes the benefits oh, of I exercise. Okay. I, the the current thinking from a group of top anti aging people I talk to and just my own interpretation probably two or three times a week it might be worth it but every day I think the the risks outweigh the yes. benefits. Not taking it all, maybe you miss out on something. But the the daily thing I was doing before does suppress mitochondrial function in a way that maybe isn't good. But we we will and we'll tease this. And you can you can have metabolic you know disruptions that'll land you in the emergency room as well. So there's that, 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 that there's problem. that little problem if you don't have diabetes. <laughs> Obviously, you have diabetes. Yeah. That's a different story. And I'm not recommending metformin for for anyone to take. Yeah. I would be careful about that one. Speaking of uh, not having diabetes, uh, I'm waving my continuous glucose monitor ah. results at you. Uh, I don't have diabetes. I just I've tracked my blood sugar, but it's 5.1, and uh, just it kind of hangs out there. 5.1, you multiply times 18 to get the U.S. I number, see. but it's around 90. Oh, that's great. So, like that's okay. that's where you want to keep it. So I I feel like we are going to get there, and uh, you know the diabetes, high blood sugar, inflammation connection, which you have now said, oh, there's your anxiety, there's your depression. And maybe not full blown clinical diagnostic, but moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, I, I just uh, thanks for your work. I'm I'm fascinated by it, and I, I plan to continue following it. For people who are just you know turned on and excited by this, uh, there is a URL you can go to. It's behavioralimmunology.com. Uh, you can tell that's set up for uh, high-end traffic conversion and marketing. Uh, <laughs> behavioralimmunology.com. And um, it's at Emory uh, University uh, where a lot of this uh, information is and uh, where you're teaching. And I got to tell you, if you're looking for what you want to study uh, and you know, you're know you in high school, you're in, you're in university looking for your PhD or something like that, you should look at this kind of stuff. Uh, interpersonal neurobiology... And behavioral immunology are areas of decades worth of fascinating work. Like we're nowhere near done here. And these are going to rewrite what we know about ourselves. So fascinating work. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.